0: stand clear of the doors Por favor manténganse alejado
1: de las are, are you ready did you stand clear of the doors
0: i did caution the doors are about to close
1: it is once again train time i like here on the on the no idea podcast uh, last time <laughs> last time we talked through the uh, big complicated history of high speed rail in the us uh, which provides background for today's uh, reading series. Um, this is from the Exponents newsletter of the Neoliberal Project at the Progressive Policy Institute. Um,
0: get that out of the way.
1: Yeah, Exponents is their like Substack newsletter, which they occasionally publish all their bad takes to. So, um, This is a a little piece entitled um, Why High-Speed Rail Has Failed and Why It Will Continue to Fail in America by a man named Colin Mortimer. Now, Colin Mortimer is a man who has a globe emoji in his Twitter name.
0: Well, that's Um, always a sign.
1: Yeah. And I also, I feel it's important to say here that, um, so I I went and looked on his LinkedIn. Um, Colin Mortimer graduated from the University of Connecticut in 2019.
0: Mm. So, uh,
1: not a super experienced kind of guy we're dealing with here, I think. That's- he was also a consultant at Bates White Economic Consulting, specializing in healthcare merger analysis. Pang! Which we we love. We love the healthcare <laughs> love mergers. Love to see
0: it. Yeah. Oh. Not. Love when they merge. Yeah. I am never going to financially recover from this. <laughs> yeah. Just,
1: anyway. So, um... Yeah, this is, I don't know why they felt compelled to write a piece on this, but we're going we're gonna to go through it thoroughly, uh, because I have some complaints with it, as mm. we, will, uh, we will get into. So, throughout the 80s and 90s, a steady stream of elected officials and bureaucrats made their way to Japan. I don't know what happened on these trips or why they were taking them, but I do know that many of them left impressed with one thing in particular. Japan's Shinkansen network, a system of high-speed trains in the island country. The Shinkansen snaked through the country's mountainous terrain and various islands, transporting passengers in a way that America had never seen before. Yes, America had trains and planes. Still, there was an underserved market that high-speed trains could fill, trips a few hundred miles long that were too, short, too long for traditional trains or cars, but too short to justify commercial flight. So when those elected officials and bureaucrats returned to the United States, they surmised to bring the Shinkansen to America. So. Uh, <clears throat> this says throughout the 80s and 90s, but you recall from last week that in fact uh, the U.S. was aware of the Shinkansen all the way back when it started, and indeed that's what caused the per, uh, the passage of the High Speed Ground Transportation Act of 1965 and the development of the Metro Liner. So I'm now
0: not- I'm no mathematician, but that seems like a, a several decades before. It does, yeah, yes.
1: Uh, it, it, it's This is weird because it makes it seem like high-speed rail wasn't on America's radar until like the 80s and 90s, which it totally was. <laughs> we just,
0: then oh, we're like, oh, shucks, back. look at this. We didn't even know it about yeah. it.
1: Yeah, like we had been buying Sony TVs for like 40 years and then we were like, "Hey, wait a minute. You guys have trains? What the heck?" <laughs> yeah, no. I don't know. I mean, we've been like I've said last week, we've been doing stuff with high speed rail since like the 1930s when we constructed the diesel streamliners. So,
0: there's this I'm is not- just like a sets up like a trend of these people is that they have no historical context. Like, yeah. Well, it's they, they just don't understand how the history of anything has worked like they they can only live in the present, and so anything that happened in the past is just the past. They don't know how recent. They don't even know, like, that things were probably more towards the left, you know, for a certain period of time. Like, they just don't... Right,
1: yeah. Well, it's the danger, it. I think, of, like, reading one Wikipedia article and being like, oh, <laughs> yeah. interesting. And, yeah, so, you know, whereas I read at least two Wikipedia articles. Right, So right, right. Yeah, you know. Yeah! <laughs> um, So, yeah, so that's been... Okay, so next paragraph. Before the Shinkansen inspired American officials, the United States had already tried its hand at faster rail service. See, I don't... I'm not... Again, (laughs) this is... The Metroliner was inspired by the Shinkansen. (laughs) Uh, This is silly. Uh, The United States had already tried its... And at Faster Rail Service, the Metroliner, it was an all-electric train meant to operate between New York and Washington, D.C. at a speed of 150 miles per hour. Spearheaded by the LBJ administration, the Metroliner was a private-public partnership in an era when America's passenger rail travel was still a private endeavor. The government's role would be to provide financial assistance to assist private companies in acquiring the train sets. But as the launch date approached, these companies were struggling to get the trains operational. The rollout of the Metroliner required extensive investment to electrify the tracks and extend the platforms along the route to accommodate the longer trains. These investments were far from cheap, causing the original Metroliner operator, the Pennsylvania Railroad, to collapse and fold into a competitor before the launch. Even consolidation could not save the Metroliner's original vision, and the Metroliner's top speed was reduced to 150 miles per hour to 110 miles per hour due to infrastructure constraints, and the service was launched a year late. The Metroliner went on to public acclaim despite the chaos. The rough rollout of the Metroliner would be far from the worst American Rail would see. So, I don't know how much you remember when we talked <laughs> about the Metroliner <laughs> yeah. last week. Uh, do, you, just, do you notice this is- some some (laughs) inaccuracies
0: it seems like he got like everything wrong here like
1: uh, yeah i mean yeah yeah so the okay so lot i have a lot of issues with this paragraph so uh so again legislatures were were inspired by the shinkansen to pass this act which funded 90 million to create the passenger service uh of the metro liner Department of Transportation worked with the Bud Company and the Pennsylvania Railroad to develop the Liner, which was a revolutionary uh, train set for its time. It had uh, lots of new technology. One of the things that I think is interesting about it, in, in a conventional train, you have a throttle that has, like, eight settings, and you can, like... So it's, like, rather than in a car where you have an accelerator pedal that, you know, is, like, continuous across its entire range of motion, this mm-hmm. would be, like, you could only do, like... One, two, three, four, five, six, seven, eight, and then if you wanted to keep up a speed, you just have to kind of sw- keep switching back and forth. The metroliners were sophisticated in that they were uh, computer controlled, so you would just set a desired speed and they would match it. That's an example of the kind of technology they had, which in 1967 and 68 yeah. was pretty revolutionary. Um, but they had a lot of technical issues because of this, and because electric multiple units were were fairly new at the time anyway, so. Um, the, you know, it, it, there's always teething issues with new technology. Also, he, th- he says the rollout of Metroliner required extensive investment to electrify the tracks and extend the platforms along the route to accommodate the longer trains. Part of the reason that they made the liner run on the New York to DC <laughs> route was because that route was already electrified as late as 1930. So there, <laughs> there was no need to electrify it. That was the whole point, is that it was already electrified. I also don't understand extending the platforms along the route to accommodate the longer trains metroliner trains were not longer than yeah. conventional <laughs> passenger trains in fact if you think about it they were typically 6 cars long sometimes even 4 cars long so fairly short if you think about it, metroliner is a multiple unit it doesn't have a locomotive so it's actually shorter right. than like a similarly sized or capacity passenger train i i think that's just totally wrong <laughs> um and then he uses that to then say um, that uh, the Metro liner caused the original operator, Pennsylvania Railroad, to collapse and fold into a competitor before launch. And this is just outrageously incorrect. <laughs> and so we have to dig, we have to go back in time and we have to go off on a sidebar for a little bit to talk about the Pennsylvania Railroad. So in the 1960s, the Pennsylvania Railroad was the biggest and most advanced passenger railroad in the country. Its significant and historical rival was the New York Central. They operated in similar territory. Uh, Pennsylvania Pennsylvania Railroad obviously having like Pennsylvania, but then a lot of the Northeast and some of the Midwest. New York City had most of New York, but then also territory in the Northeast and the Midwest. So they were in competition a lot of the times. Um, They both operated trains into Manhattan. Pennsylvania Railroad went to Penn Station, Pennsylvania Station, and the New York Central went to Grand Central Station, um, and both had heavy passenger businesses. Uh, passenger rail travel, as I mentioned last week, had been on the decline since the end of World War II, uh, and the move away from passenger rail travel picked up steam with the construction of the interstate highways and the decreasing cost of air travel. Um, in, c- in comparison to other railroads in other parts of the country, railroads like the Santa Fe, uh, the Chessie system, the Union Pacific and so on, which had um, considerable freight business that they could still rely on. The Pennsylvania Railroad and the New York Central had a much more varied mix, uh, so they, weren't, they couldn't necessarily depend on freight. Another problem as well was there are just so many railroads, small railroads in the Northeast in that area that the freight business was divided up amongst all sorts of um, small railroads. So they didn't have uh, the backbone of freight to rely on like the other Uh, railroads Um, so the loss of passengers was affecting those railroads particularly hard one of the things also that affected the New York Central was the opening of the St. Lawrence Seaway which is a canal between the Great Lakes and the Atlantic Ocean uh, which meant that you could now just get goods on ships to the Great Lakes without having to unload them and put them on trains and you know take them across overland basically Um, so That ate up a lot of the New York Central's freight business, as well as chronic mismanagement uh, that had lasted several decades. So the New York Central was in a sort of dire position um, and needed a sort of corporate savior to come along to keep it from collapsing. The only railroad that was really large enough... And had the capital available to make or merge or work was the Pennsylvania Railroad, which was Mm. considered more robust than the New York Central. Pennsylvania Railroad was a bit more diversified into having not just rail holdings, but also real estate and all that stuff. You know how the big companies get. Um, So they they merged. They merged in 1968 into the Penn Central. Officially, the Pennsylvania Railroad absorbed the New York Central. Notice when I've talked about this that nowhere did I discuss the Metro-liner because it didn't play a role in this at all. Uh the the Metro-liner uh expenses really had nothing to do with the formation of Penn Central. In fact, the Pennsylvania Railroad and then the Penn Central boasted often of the Metro-liner uh and it was well received despite issues with reliability. It helped reverse the decline in passenger traffic on the Northeast Corridor because of how successful it was. Um uh, it also didn't... the yeah, Pennsylvania. Globe, Railroad Globe didn't Man collapse.
0: said. Globe Man <laughs> said.
1: <laughs> yeah. He, he said the Pennsylvania Railroad collapsed. It didn't collapse. Uh, and and the New York Central didn't collapse either, although the Penn Central would eventually collapse after only 872 <coughs> days of existence. And this is largely a result of the In- Interstate Commerce Commission, which was the regulator of the railroads, mandating that Penn Tri- the Penn Central also take over the bankrupt New York, New Haven, and Hartford Railroad. So it basically say, hey, why don't you take over this unprofitable railroad as well? In fact, we require you to. And then there were also numerous problems with the actual merger. There was no real implementation plan for how they were going to stitch the two companies together uh, or anything like that, and it ended up just completely uh, collapsing under its own weight uh, and brought the entire operation down and led directly to the creation of Amtrak. So I just find that assertion that the uh, that the Metroliner caused the Pennsylvania Railroad to collapse so ridiculous that it calls in to question the entire credibility of this piece. In my opinion, um, I mean, uh, as you saw earlier, we're playing a little bit fast and loose with the facts here. So um, <laughs> yes, yeah. I mean, this is so I I. I What I did is I have three books on uh, the Penn Central, which I have not read all three in their entirety because who has time for that these days? But I did uh, peruse their indices, for the words Metroliner and other related things and saw what they said about them. These books are The Fallen Colossus, The Wreck of the Penn Central, and No Way to Run a Railroad. And I can tell you that in none of the three books is the Metroliner identified as a cause of anything relating to the collapse of either the predecessor railroads or the Penn Central. Only one book really covers the Metroliner in any sort of detail, and it's mostly just... uh, you know, talking about the success that it had despite right, the it. Right, because they take it they take it for granted
0: from our perspective to be like, Well, the the Metroliner had nothing to do with this because it was a success. Like <laughs> mm-hmm. Yeah. <laughs> so obviously why would they? <laughs>
1: yeah. I don't know. I feel like it's worth noting too that the Metroliner was a half measure of high speed rail, like I mentioned last week. Mm-hmm. It was intended to run high speed trains on infrastructure that wasn't designed for it. Uh, You know, there was no dedicated infrastructure built for it because the U.S. government is allergic to funding rail infrastructure, even as it happily spends billions of dollars to build highways and airports. (laughs) (laughs) Uh, We'll get back to that later. Uh Next section. In 1991, President H.W. Bush signed into law the Intermodal Surface Transportation Efficiency Act. <laughs> the bill was broad. It created the Rails to Trails program, mandated airbags and passenger vehicles built after 1998, and designated five different potential high-speed rail corridors in America, including the Northeast Regional Corridor. Up until this point, Amtrak had been running the Metroliner for nearly 30 years, and speeds have never reached their original goal. Okay, so... Do you remember last week when I mentioned how the Metroliner uh, cars were eventually replaced by (coughs) new locomotives that actually managed to do pretty well? Right. So Amtrak had been running the Metroliner for 30 years, but not in Metroliner service. They were run on the Keystone service. The Metroliner service was taken up by AEM 7 locomotives, which did just fine and served admirably until 2018 even. um, So, using its new federal funding, Amtrak called for proposals of a new high-speed train that might live up to the original promise of Metroliner, Acela. Acela would look like a high-speed train of Europe or Asia. It would tilt into curves like other high-speed trains, a necessity along the winding northeast corridor. Acela would be able to travel between Washington and Boston on electric only, unlike the previous service that terminated in New York. Finally, and most importantly, Acela would surpass the Metroliner speeds at the time. Amtrak required bids to be able to build a train capable of hitting 165 miles per hour. The promise of American high-speed rail had been renewed. But these specifications, along with the requirement that Acela be able to withstand impact from a freight train, sent costs skyrocketing. So th- this is mostly accurate, apart from the thing I mentioned earlier. And also, um, Acela... <laughs> Would be able to travel the distance between Washington and Boston on electrical land, like the previous service that terminated in New York. That's because a significant portion of the cost of, of Acela and, and the Acela service was spent on electrifying the portion of the rail from New Haven to Boston mm-hmm. so that that was possible. So bear that in mind later when we complain about the costs of things. Um, so, but the thing is, that was a good decision. Because before you had this thing where you would have diesel trains from Boston to New Haven and then electric trains from New Haven to D.C. Now they just run electric trains all the way, whether they're Acela's or uh, city sprinters or whatever. So it's a good decision. Electrification is generally a good decision and we should spend money doing it. Uh, One thing he mentions here. Uh, the requirement that a seller be able to withstand impact from a tra- freight train sent cost skyrocketing. This this is a good point. It was a huge impediment. There was a uh, Federal Railroad Administration requirement, which is called the buff strength test, which required American oh, passenger trains. The buff trains strength
0: st- test? I've passed that. Indeed. <laughs> <laughs> nice. <laughs>
1: um, it required American passenger trains to withstand almost twice as much force in an impact than a European train. And prohibited the sort of uh, crush or crumple zone designs that Mm -hmm. they used in Europe to manage the crash energy, as they call it, crash energy management. Um, That was not allowed to be used on American passenger trains. And so that did add a lot of weight and cost the Acela vehicles. That requirement was originally written in the 1940s and didn't change until 2018 when they finally modified it and pretty much resolved it. It's not really an issue anymore, fortunately. Although no new projects have yet taken advantage of that. Mm -hmm. Hopefully they will soon, but. With reality setting in and costs skyrocketing, so too was the promise of Acela downgraded. Sharing tracks with traditional trains meant congestion and expensive designs to accommodate both trains. The infrastructure itself was very old, and the bridges and tracks could not handle a 620-ton train set barreling over them at 165 miles per hour. Neither could the people living next to the tracks whose homes had been built decades prior without high-speed train noise considerations in mind. Local regulations were erected to limit Acela's speed through their neighborhoods, and the federal government restricted the train's speed over aging infrastructure. This meant Amtrak's marquee service would take 2 hours and 45 minutes to travel at an average speed of 82.2 miles per hour between Washington, D.C. and New York, a speed slower than even the fastest Metroliner times decades prior. Acela was relegated to an aesthetic improvement over its predecessor. So, this is mm. interesting in that there's some framing here that is a little yeah. bit suspect, <laughs> I would say.
0: Little sus with the framing. So,
1: I complained previously that Acela is not a, a proper high speed rail service because right. it shares tracks with traditional trains, and this is a, an issue. You know, it slows <clears throat> the trains down. This is my whole thing, is that this is not the way to build a high-speed rail system. Mm-hmm. So I'm not entirely sure what he's getting out of observing that. Um, but that's part of the problem. It doesn't have dedicated right-of-way. It has to share trackage along these alignments laid out in the 19th century with sharp curves and hundreds of grade crossings. By the way, there's maximum speeds allowed at grade crossings because you don't want a train flying by at 165 miles per hour when there could be a semi on the tracks or preparing to cross the tracks, Basically there's reaction time involved for people to stop at the grade crossings. Uh, so trains that go across, you know, roads are, are limited to certain maximum speeds and, and to be able to get up to the very high speeds that are characteristic of European and Japanese systems requires that they be grade separated basically, which incidentally requires special infrastructure for that sort of thing. Um, that's none of that is Amtrak's fault, you know. Th- this issue, all all of these issues with the slow speed or whatever. Again, it's just because the federal government has never seen fit to spend any money on building <clears throat> significant new rail infrastructure. All of the <laughs> right. grants that Amtrak gets <laughs> are typically limited to improvements to existing infrastructure, like the grant that they got to electrify the line from New Haven to Boston. It was just an improvement on the on the current infrastructure. So
0: Yeah, and one assumes one assumes that the that, that, you know, Mr. Globeman wouldn't like the alternative which we would say which is just building dedicated infrastructure. Well and we'll get like, to that
1: because the conclusion <laughs> of this piece kind of doesn't exist. We'll we'll get to that. <laughs> um another thing he says, the infrastructure was very old, the bridges and tracks could not handle a six hundred and twenty trun train set barreling over them at hundred sixty five miles per hour. I'm not I mean there... Mm-hmm. Those speed limits that are imposed on the bridges are not a result of the weight of the trains. I'm not entirely sure what that's about. Yeah, a train can go really uh, as fast as the bridge is designed for, as long as it meets the weight. Requ- I don't know. That's a weird connection. I'm not sure why those two things are connected there. Uh, the other thing, of well, course, when is something that he's goes just...
0: faster, it gets heavier. You know, exactly. That's just yes, physics. Indeed, <laughs> that's just that's just physics.
1: <laughs> oh my god. huh
0: yeah. <laughs> Um, and then he says
1: this meant that Amtrak's marquee service would take two hours, 45 minutes to travel at an average speed of 82.2 miles per hour between Washington, DC and New York, a speed slower than even the fastest Metroliner time decades prior. So as I mentioned last week, this is correct. And Am- the Acela takes about 20 minutes longer than the Metroliner did at its fastest speed. But what's interesting here is that the average speed of Metroliners was also pretty close to 80 miles per hour. Doesn't mention that here. I think it's, you're meant to see that, oh, it was supposed to go 165 and an average is 82. Right. And that's supposed to be a big disparity that's supposed to make you think something. Um, of course, the same thing is, was also true of the Metroliner services. They were designed to go like 140, which they can reach, again, on these certain sections of the rail, but the average speed is much lower. That's the, When we talk about high-speed rail and we talk about the speed of high-speed rail, we're usually talking about the maximum speed, not the average speed because things have to speed up and slow down and there are curves and things like that. So that's that. Uh, I don't know. That's that's a weird one to me. This would not end America's foray into high-speed rail. One of those electorate officials in the 80s traveling to Japan was Governor Jerry Brown of California, who after returning from a trip decided that his state needed high-speed rail as well. But having not decided to seek a third term yet, time was not on the governor's side. All he could pass before leaving office was a feasibility study that began the state's foray into the complexities of bringing high-speed trains to the state. Little did anyone know that in 29 years he would be back in the governor's office, picking up nearly exactly where he left off. Back as governor in 2011, Jerry Brown declared, I would like to be part of the group that gets America to think big again. In the time between his first and second stint as governor, not much has happened regarding the development of high-speed rail in the state. A high-speed rail authority was set up which didn't seem to amount to much of anything in the 15 years it existed. Cost projections were released that pegged the cost of connecting San Francisco and Los Angeles by rail at $25 billion. Notably, Brown's predecessor, Arnold Schwarzenegger, was able to get a high-speed rail bond initiative on the ballot. It passed, allowing the state to raise up to about $10 billion for high-speed rail projects in the state. Federal funds in the wake of the Great Recession were also in the coffers. But with nothing to say for for the project, the cost was already rising. The original plan called for true high-speed rail, exclusive tracks running from San Francisco to Anaheim with a sustained stop-top speed of 220 miles per hour. The projected cost... Uh, was $33 billion up already from the original projection of $25 billion. Even that projection was short-lived. The rail authority realized the cost of running the system on exclusive tracks was far from cheap. It would triple the cost of the project to $98 billion. So just like Acela expectations started being cut back, the authority opted to share tracks with commuter trains in the Bay Area, requiring a second door on each rail car to accommodate two different platform heights. This compromise was not enough. Along with other complications, the costs still remain twice as high as the most recent projection, now $65 billion. So, he's right and that California high-speed rail is the first truly high-speed rail project that has ever been attempted in the U.S. Um, it is expensive to build new infrastructure. $65 billion is a lot of money. Um, if you look at how much the interstate highway system costs to build in 2018 dollars, it cost $521 billion. I think people lose sight of the fact that we spent an absolutely massive amount of money paving highways across the country. Um, and I yeah. don't understand why we why people have decided that we can't do that anymore.:
0: I think it's a lot thing. of sunk fallacy sunk cost fallacy, you know what I mean? yeah. Well, and also, by the
1: way, it's not like we're done building highways. Like we're constantly <laughs> spending billions of dollars on highways. Yeah. Like that that costs Maybe continues. stop
0: expanding that system and put some of our resources into a better yeah. system. You know, what I mean it'd be like, Well, we need to we need more people to have uh phones, so we need to put up more telephone poles. It's like mm. when cell phones exist, why? You know? Yeah. Right. <laughs> so uh,
1: the other thing here is he talks about um <clears throat> running on exclusive tracks. The California high-speed rail, the central segment that they are building, will be exclusive tracks still. Um, He's right that they're running, uh, they're sharing tracks with commuter trains in the Bay Area. They're running along the Caltrain track. Mm -hmm. I don't know whether that's a function of cost savings because it was too expensive, or if it's just a function of the fact that that alignment already exists, and it's pretty good already. Mm -hmm. Um, One of the things here is that um, sharing that, right-of-way with caltrain which is the commuter train between san francisco and san jose has actually resulted in caltrain working to electrify its train tracks which is a good thing and it's getting new train sets for that which will be faster uh, and enable more frequent service and not use diesel therefore reducing emissions so that's a good thing i think um also he says um Opted to share tracks with commuter trains in the barrier, requiring a second door on each rail car to accommodate two different platform heights. This doesn't refer to the California high-speed rail trains, though. This refers to the new Caltrain trains. Mm-hmm. Basically, they're they're a high-speed rail uh, train. Typically, has a, a fairly high platform. Commuter trains tend to be slightly lower. Uh, And there was some back and forth between CalHSR and Caltrain about how to resolve this. Eventually, Caltrain decided that it would order its new electric trains with two different doors so that they could accommodate the two different platform heights. So that's a cost that's being borne by Caltrain, not the California High-Speed Rail Authority. Mm. I think he got mixed up there. Admittedly, the names are confusing, Caltrain and (laughs) CalHSR. I could see how you could get them confused, but that's... the. That's not a concern for the high-speed rail thing. That's a concern for the commuter trains, which they were going to buy new ones anyway. So right. then the project hit more but predictable roadblocks. Land acquisition through eminent domain became lengthy and costly. County governments sued the state government. Consultants over-promised and under-delivered. Ever heard of that happening before? Capturing <laughs> roles that should have been filled by the government. Environmental reviews were required ad nauseum. Politicians and constituents were angry that they didn't get their specific carve out, with one Republican council member even spending $3,000 to complain that the high-speed rail money should be used to build a dam instead. So this is the beginning of his argument that basically um, it's too hard to build rail in the U.S. because of quote-unquote roadblocks, things like having to pay people to take their land and having to do environmental reviews before you lay down a a rail through a a wetland or whatever. Mm -hmm. Um, I'm not necessarily swayed by the argument that eminent domain should be made easier or that it should be made more difficult for local governments to oppose big projects. That just doesn't seem like a great (laughs) idea to me. Um, Admittedly, these things are headaches and they slow things down, but making it easier to take people's homes and blast highways through them is only going to hurt poor and minority communities more because nimbyism mm. works, but only if you're white. Mm. I mean, that, that's, if you want evidence of that, look at the construction of the interstate highway system. Here in Detroit, the highways uh, near the inner city near downtown Detroit were blasted through poor black neighborhoods. Then when well, they got out into yes, the suburbs... Look at the designs... <laughs> <laughs> When, when you got out of the suburbs, construction suddenly halted because all the white people were like, oh, no, you're not building a highway through my neighborhood. Um, and suddenly those highways were either rerouted or canceled entirely. So I don't know how making eminent domain easier is going to ex- not exacerbate that situation already. I don't, there's no way yeah. to s- thread that needle.
0: I mean, that's a little bit of a... Oh,
1: <laughs> yeah, I don't, uh, I don't know. Well, if we come back to that <laughs> well and bit,
0: look look so. i mean this is this is i don't want to get you too off track here but like part part of that comes down to like you you have to work with the people like because the, these right. projects are public projects and so you need to communicate and uh help the public understand that and i uh, you know you have to get buy-in like yeah and and,
1: and, <laughs> and spoiler for later there's a there's a a, a passing reference to how easy it is in China to appropriate land and it's like my dude that's not really what <laughs> we're going for here cool <laughs> yeah anyway um these issues plagued governor brown throughout the entirety of his second stint in office so even th- though the project gro- broke ground before he left office Brown didn't have much to show for eight years of effort to add insult to injury after leaving sacramento the price jumped by 10 billion and the cumulative delay became 13 years california's new governor newsom canned the project though it was less so a cancellation more of an indefinite postponement of the most essential portions of the project the tracks around san francisco and los angeles newsom kept the portion of the project to build 163 miles of track between bakersfield and merced alive a far cry from the original ambition to connect california's two population centers uh this is true gavin newsom did postpone everything but the central segment uh which is a shame because this would be a good project that would go a long way towards reducing the air travel between la and san francisco which is a far more polluting form of transit
0: and car travel there's a lot of car travel
1: (laughs) yeah um and so the california high-speed rail extensions to um San Francisco and LA would go a long way to to solving that. The California High Speed Rail extension to to San Francisco would also go a long way towards unifying all the disparate transit systems around the Bay Area, which has like I don't know, thirteen different transit agencies all doing things. Um, Because there are plans uh, in the works that would basically connect California High Speed Rail to San Francisco, and then possibly put another tube under the Bay to connect to Oakland, which Mm -hmm. would be another uh, uh, quick way to get from Oakland. Yeah, that would be a a pretty big deal. Um, Bay Area Transit officials are still plowing ahead with improvements to the rail network, like I mentioned earlier. Anyway, uh, Caltrain electrifying its main line, so the potential is still there. Um, and I know that MetroLink in, in California uh, or in LA is continuing to acquire new rolling stock, things like that, and is generally uh, mm-hmm. moving along as well. So I don't know. Postponement. I I hope that it is indeed a genuine postponement because. I think, honestly, the, you know, the longest distance portion of it will be this Bakersfield to Merced portion. Right. It'll be more complicated to connect up to the actual metro areas, but the distance will be shorter. You know, right. it's, all of this is hard. Infrastructure is hard, I think. And the the point of this piece, I believe, it's hard to know exactly what the point of this piece is. I believe the point of this piece is that he's saying that, in fact, it's too hard, and so we shouldn't bother. But, like, we did a lot of hard things as a country, and we seem to just be... It's like, I don't know, we're all just lazy now? We don't want to do hard things anymore because they require effort? I don't know. (coughs) So, why has high-speed rail failed every time it has been tried in the United States? It is not for a lack of effort or a lack of money. You'd think that after decades of headbanging that our public officials would find at least some progress past the obstacles that have stood in the way. What gives? It is a complex system of factors which can be grouped into two buckets, legal and structural. So, firstly, I disagree with the assertion that high-speed rail has ever really been tried in the U.S.
0: Yeah. As
1: I've mentioned, the only thing that's gotten close is California high-speed rail, which is still under construction. So, I mean, it, it actually is for a lack of effort and a lack of money. I keep harping on these things. We haven't tried it. That's why it hasn't succeeded. Is we've because just we've dipped never our stung. toes in the water it's and we like, keep
0: being like, eh. why did I
1: not uh, finish the marathon? Is it because I didn't show up or pay the entrance fee? No. In <laughs> fact, it's related to structural issues. <laughs> it's like, oh my God. Um, here's the thing though. Both the Metroliner and Acela proved that if you provide frequent fast train service between two population centers, it is very popular. <laughs> Peng! <laughs> it's, people like it. People like trains. And, and, you know, I think if you give them the opportunity to travel between two population centers for relatively cheap, and they don't have to worry about driving or parking, they will probably take you up on that. Because yes. I, don't, I don't know about you, Aaron, but when I think about even just driving to downtown Detroit and <sighs> thinking about where to park, I just get kind of annoyed with the whole thing. <laughs> It's just, well, obnoxious.
0: I, I can tell you, like, I can't, I don't think this year, I don't even think maybe in a year, I have gone, as we call it, down, quote unquote, down the hill, taking, leaving my desert to go through, over the mountains, through the pass, down into the, you know, more populous places right. to LA. I mean, it's been forever, because I just don't want to yeah. deal with it. Right. Can't be bothered. Yeah. I mean, think of so when people talk about this
1: sort of urban rural divide in our politics, think of how much we could go towards eliminating that by having high speed rail that would make it easier for people from other places to go to new places <laughs> and then, you know, be basically, um, you know, pollinized by the culture. There things like that. Mm. It's. uh We can, there's a lot of things that a high-speed rail can solve that aren't necessarily just moving people back and forth. (laughs) There's a lot of, there's a lot of positive externalities. This is absolutely amazing. Uh, The legal obstacles in opposition to high-speed rail may have had benevolent intentions when first passed, but are lethal to any aspiring high-speed rail project. Environmental reviews make construction an expensive endeavor before shovels even start moving dirt. Sturdy property rights make the acquisition of privately owned land expensive and lengthy, a problem that countries like China don't face. <laughs> nice. A culture of public input makes every inch of track an issue worthy of public hearings and comment. Contractors in their unions know all too well how to extract money from public entities who don't know any better to turn the tap off. Uh... Cool. Nice to get unions there. The (laughs) neoliberals love to dig at unions any chance they get. Um, these are problems so large, they cannot be solved by any transit authority alone. They're deeply ingrained local state and federal laws that breed a culture that demands too many cooks in the kitchen. The result is the accumulation of cost overruns and delays that kill once ambitious projects. So, like I said before, I don't believe that eminent domain should necessarily be easier. Um, It's true that China doesn't face issues with acquiring public land. China is also an authoritarian state where you have basically no say in what the government does at all, uh, and that's basically what he's sort of aiming for here. When he says "too many cooks in the kitchen," he would like to be the cook in the kitchen. I think uh, the technocrat in charge, um, saying, <laughs> yes. "Yeah, we're gonna bulldoze your house." What do you, what, you know? Just what you make me,
0: just make me chef.
1: <laughs> yeah. Um, also. Environmental reviews are hard to disagree with in principle, I mean <laughs> we're well past the days of just paving over wetlands. It turns right. out that that has consequences. We learned that when we built the interstate highway system. It turns out you have to think about these things,
0: particularly in California, where like a huge source of our revenue is you know tourism and our public uh resources and our public our nature lands, and wildlife yeah. and public land like that's a big deal in in you know. Not taking care of that decreases. Yeah, I mean, it's like
1: you can't just blast <laughs> a, a railway through like Napa Valley, you know?
0: <laughs> just like cut right through Yosemite Valley. Yeah, just, just, I mean, <laughs> just you go.
1: It's like we just build high speed rail everywhere. So you go to show up at Mount Rushmore and there's just a train trestle right across it. You can't even see it anymore. It's <laughs> like, well, we put it where it would go yeah no I
0: mean this is this is just silly to me I don't well you know things- it, it, like you said you said before like we just haven't been willing to do the work like we won't yeah. we won't do the hard things it's something that I've been thinking about a lot a lot lately because um I've been listening to and reading a little bit of uh Jane McAlevey who's a uh um labor organizer right and and a lot of what she talks about is like one of the reasons that labor in the united states is so far behind is that we just like gave up doing the hard grunt work yeah. of organizing and actually talking to people and actually working together to get buy in mm-hmm. to build solidarity to like find our common interests and we just spend all of our time fighting amongst little tribes and, and that's the same thing that happens here. The reason it can't happen is because we don't have any sort of like unity on it. And you know what I mean? We don't want to do the hard work of like actually making sure it is, we, we, we all understand and buy into the environmental trade-offs and we, we say, we all understand where to draw the line. You know what I mean? Like, yeah, you can't just right. like give the authority to a little dictator to make it happen. And that's like what this that's what neoliberalism wants, right? Oh, they want yeah. to give the globe exactly. man they the power. Want a whole
1: bunch of czars, right? The, the, right. The, the health czar and the train yeah. czar. And, and that's not how this stuff works. Right. Uh, but you can tell he sort of has contempt for it because of the, a culture of public input. <laughs> we, uh, where i come That's from we call that democracy
0: public. yeah it's called democracy
1: <laughs> i don't makes every inch of track an issue worthy of public hearings and comment it, it turns out that the people you're trying to serve with the high-speed rail might have uh thoughts about how it should be conducted knowledge um I don't. I don't get. I'm somewhat sympathetic to the argument that federalism allows for like too many voices and for big projects to be scuttled by like a little town somewhere. But I don't know how we do that because that's literally the structure of our government. We'd have to like change the constitution or whatever well, to let's, get rid of that.
0: We've we've gotten pretty far into this thing, and has he said anything about um the major the 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 elephant in the room, which is our uh, capitalist system run by fossil fuel companies like uh no in <laughs> fact, does that have anything no, to do with it does that factor into this at all maybe is it is it really the people who are gumming up the works or is it these vested corporate interests that are gumming up the works like blaming the people yeah, no, blaming it's, yeah, environmentalists it's, it's the, listen, blaming it's the liberal media communi- yeah <laughs> Just like how- co- how he it doesn't, doesn't talk about that as a factor, you want to blame the people, but you don't want to yeah. blame the 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 power that's insane. i do
1: want to I don't want to circle back you know because he talks about how expensive the california high speed rail has gotten, and we talked a little bit last week how um it turns out that a lot of highway improvements were built into the construction of the high speed rail, yeah. so those are sort of being i would say unfairly counted as part of the cost um but then he also has this this article that he links about uh, you know contractors. Um, taking too much money um, this is an LA Times article entitled how California's faltering high speed rail project was captured by costly consultants and it basically talks about how um, consultants convinced uh, the politicians in charge that instead of like creating like a government agency with government staff to run this stuff that you could just have a bunch of consultants to do it and I don't understand is is this guy this neoliberal guy opposed to this because like that's his whole that's like their whole thing as neoliberals is like we just have <coughs> consultants do it like this is i mean he literally worked for a consultancy yeah (laughs) so like it's like yeah that is the problem and you're not helping it in any way you're part of you're saying more of that will solve that Mm. this is the, the the california state government should have created an agency and staffed it up properly it talks about how even the 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 offices that the california high speed rail authority uses are rented to it by a consultancy firm right Right. Which it's just, it doesn't, that's just bad management, honestly. And that's like, uh, probably, you know, as a result of reg capture and, and, and rent seeking by the consultant and the, the political classes, they're just too close to each other, you know, because yeah. it's almost certainly politicians just handing out money to, you know, their friends basically. So I right. agree that that's an issue, but I don't agree that this guy knows how to solve it. He only knows how to make it worse. That's kind mm-hmm. of his job <laughs> in a <laughs> sense. <laughs> So, um... The problems are also structural, geographically and historically speaking. American advocates of high-speed rail don't realize how little density America has compared to other countries with high-speed rail. For example, the route between San Francisco and Los Angeles would have been nearly 440 miles long compared to 230 miles between London and Paris. Tokyo to Osaka is 320 miles. Generally, high-speed rail with multiple stops is only practical under distances under 500 miles. California's main route pushes this limit with nothing to say on other ambitious proposals that call for a national high-speed rail network. So he kind of gives away the game here that California's high-speed rail is within the supposed limit. Mm -hmm. So that's fine. I mean, that's the whole point is that, would you agree that like it's way too far to drive from LA to San Francisco, but it's kind of a weirdly (coughs) short flight as well? Like it almost seems wasteful. That's that's the exact (laughs) distance of high-speed rail and that's where it's good.
0: You don't want people to understand that people are doing it anyway, and they just hate it. You know what yeah, I mean?
1: Yeah, right. But, the, I mean, this is the thing. Like, back with the Transportation Equity Act in 1991, it didn't necessarily define a bunch of high-speed rail lines across the country. It identified five areas that were good for it, which is, like, Florida, Texas, the Northeast, and around Chicago, and then California, and the Cascades, which is, like, between, like, Portland and Seattle. mm mm-hmm. I think it would be very cool to have a high-speed line from, like, Chicago to L.A. I agree it's not necessarily as practical, um, mm-hmm. but that's also not necessarily what people are proposing, you know? Right, right. <laughs> so, we're muddying the waters there a little bit. Then in a place like the Northeast Corridor, why haven't we seen true high-speed rail? <laughs> I feel like I've gone over this. Um, the wait, distance wait, from it. New York Can't to Washington. You're crazy! <laughs> Yeah. <laughs> the distance from New York to Washington is about the same distance from London to Paris right in the sweet spot. The answer here is one of space and one that beckons to the legal <laughs> concerns listed above. Where are we going to put this track? Much of the existing rail in the Northeast Corridor is abutted by industry, home and cities. 70 years ago, building on greenfield would have made this uh, a non-issue, but suburban sprawl, acquiring all this property would be a monumental task, costing untold billions of dollars of disruption. When the systems of Europe and Japan were built, they did not nearly have this problem. They <laughs> beat high-speed rail, along with the culture that valued it, well before infrastructure glut could get in the way. Status quo bias is a hell of a phenomenon. And the comment I have here is, it's almost like we should have spent money on railway instead of highways back in the 60s. <laughs> almost. Almost. Hmm. Yeah. I don't know. It's possible that we could just, I don't know, take <clears throat> the existing highways that we have and put rails down the middle of it. That would probably be a start. Yeah. I mean, that that lands there already, so (laughs) eh, just take a lane from each side of the highway. (laughs) So the case against high-speed rail is not a case against high-speed rail itself. On its face, high-speed rail is a wonderful idea. It is a, parentheses, potentially, close paren, green alternative to driving or flying and provides travelers with the opportunity to travel from downtown to downtown rather than airports on the periphery. Instead, the case against high-speed rail is a feasibility (laughs) argument. It is an argument against the complex systems that prevent high-speed trains from taking to the tracks. <coughs> if it were feasible to overhaul our burdensome environmental reviews, pump out corruption from our infrastructure contractors, reform the legal incentives that encourage public resistance to high-speed rail, demolish our current infrastructure without quality of life concerns, and move our cities closer together all at once, then a high-speed rail would be a no-brainer opportunity. Even reform in just a few of these areas might put high-speed rail over the edge. Uh, so, Feasibility is a way of saying this is hard uh, and using this is hard as an excuse for not doing it is something that I don't I don't buy personally because we've undertaken a lot of mega projects before. Right. Um, as I keep saying the interstate highway system massive mega project did it necessarily make sense was there a, a good uh, like how many people drive from Chicago to LA probably not that many. So in his view we probably shouldn't have built a highway that connects those two places.
0: Well, Based how many people go to rail. the moon? We went to the moon. We built a whole infrastructure to go to the moon. Yeah, hardly anyone goes
1: to the moon. I mean, come on. <laughs> um, it The thing is, the, the uh, interstate highway system faced a lot of the hurdles that were mentioned in this thing, possible exception of environmental reviews and, to some extent, uh, eminent domain as well. Um, but we see where that has gotten us. Um, interesting thing is, you know, he says... Uh, if it were feasible to overhaul our burdensome environmental reviews, uh, pump out corruption from our infrastructure contractors, reform the legal incentives that encourage public resistance to high speed rail. So all of those three things are sort of I would say, you know, quote unquote feasible in the mm. but then he just sort of goes for the more ridiculous things, demolish our current infrastructure without quality of life concerns, and move our cities closer together all <coughs> at once. So Oh we yes, go from, so you know, like,
0: moving cities much easier than uh, Yeah. Well and also <laughs> building something.
1: We go from like, oh, high-speed rail is hard because environmental reviews are expensive to high-speed rail is hard because we can't move our cities close enough. Uh, and I just... No. Yeah. It's like, the stakes are not that high, but it's written in a rhetorical way to make the it younger seem
0: generation now.
1: <laughs> also, this little, this little side shot uh, that high-speed rail is a potentially green alternative to driving or flying. Bruh. Uh, this is an article from 2011 that says that um, you know, well, if you factor in all of the costs of building high speed rail, it's not as gr- you know, it's less green. To which I say, if you factor in the costs of building a highway system, it's even worse. If you so, factor in
0: the cost of not doing anything and continuing on this path, <laughs> yeah,
1: it's like, oh, uh, listen, building a high speed rail system will require uh, emissions to do and not doing it will will require no emissions so it's the better solution it's like well i don't know this analysis is not super great to me i don't know if they took into account the number of cars and planes that you would remove from service by having an electric train
0: (sighs) or mm. the cost of maintaining and expanding our current road system
1: Yeah, uh, do you know that um, rails can be in service for, like, four decades? And rail cars can also be in service for, like, four decades?
0: Nobody takes a long-term view of things because we've lost our ability to think as a society and as a culture, and we don't think about the future. We just think about the immediate future or the now. And it, it, it leads to all sorts of insane decisions that... Well, yes, in five years, this won't improve anything, but it, mm. it might save the world.
1: <laughs> yeah. Ugh.
0: I mean, here, like
1: this is the thing is the Canadian uh, passenger railway via rail is still using uh, bud rail diesel cars, which were built um, at the very latest. So like the newest rail diesel cars that they could own were built in 1962 as early as 1949 they are still using some of this equipment to these to this day
0: like i said like, like i said last time we, we we drink from wells we did not dig man it's just yeah like.
1: but this is the thing is we can how how often do you have to replace a car you know like every 10 years approximately and doing the maintenance on a concrete freeway is usually uh, a like every, are they decade factoring or two in automobile
0: repairs on all of the production that goes into all of the automobile parts, all of the wheels, all the tires, yeah. all of the? This is the thing. You can
1: do a big, expansive analysis, <laughs> but you're still choosing what to include with it, right? Because these things, th- the effects of these things are simply too large to like totally capture in any way. Yeah, it's hard so for me to have any confidence that there. It, it's
0: it's hard. It's always hard for me to have any confidence of any study to fully grasp the externalities of any system we, because uh, human beings have proven again and again and again that we cannot even yeah. the smartest data brains cannot grasp all of the externalities
1: the, the conclusion basically is from this article is that you would need 10 million one-way trips to compensate for the construction emissions and that would have to come from uh aviation mm. frankly that doesn't if if we had like so that's, that's 10 million annual. I don't know. I'm not a statistician or whatever, but I, I find this to be somewhat uh, suspect, I guess. I guess I'm not sure that I totally buy it because mm-hmm. there seem to be assumptions built into it that I don't necessarily agree with. I, you have to, like I say, you have to pick and choose sort of what you're including in these analyses when you do them. So yeah, but I mean it's like their, their thing is it's like, oh, you would need uh ten million annual trips, and that would probably have to come from aviation and the whole thing is like, well, that's literally the point of the system is to like get rid <laughs> of the the jet traffic between especially uh, the you know,
0: the short term jet traffic, which you know the shorter your flight, the less uh the, right the less efficient, efficient it is, it
1: is. <laughs> yeah there's sort of a minimum you know <clears throat> if you spend on, half on of your
0: flight. Ascending and descending, like
1: Right. Or, you know, sitting on the ground and taxiing with right. some short flights. Mm-hmm. I mean I've had I've had <laughs> flights before from like Chicago to Columbus, which are, you know, like an hour and you're in the air for like 20 minutes. Mm-hmm. <laughs> so uh I, I don't know. This is anyway, let's where were we? Uh <laughs> da, da, da. but I'm not holding my breath for these structural concerns to be addressed. So what are the solutions? For one, we can invest in our existing regional rail networks that connect suburban to urban areas. Not only does this infrastructure already exist, but it is also far cheaper to build upon than to build high-speed rail networks from the ground up. Even urban metro systems, despite their cost, also have a clearer benefit than high-speed rail. I actually agree with this. We could fairly easily implement regional express and commuter rail services. Um, The problem is that it would probably require federal funding, and the federal government does not like to fund rail.
0: Well, and again, the, the the problems that he has brought up don't disappear just because it's urban. He's just right. exhibiting the, theory, the classic neoliberal bias toward urban elite regions, and that's all they they can conceive of. They don't think about all of the you know people in between <laughs> the metro areas right. who yeah. would be helped by high speed rail, right? Like, right? It's the, they just the can't comprehend The theory here,
1: that. I think, is that like. Basically, you take a big city, it probably has existing rail lines that are used mm-hmm. by freight, freight rail, right? An example of this is, <coughs> is Chicago, which has the Metra rail system, which is its commuter rail. So Chicago mm-hmm. is a, a big railroad crossroads anyway. So there are tons of rails going in and out of Chicago. It's like if you're doing commuter rail, you don't necessarily need to go that fast. Um, 70 miles per hour is usually a decent speed. So right. you can you can run it on rails that are more sharply curved, um, not specifically built for high speed rail service. All you really have to do is buy the equipment and run the trains, um, mm-hmm. and that's relatively cheap. <coughs> um, and of course, that works and it does a, a a decent job of eliminating the sort of local congestion around the area, right? But it doesn't really do anything to, as you're saying, like you know, travel from outside of the city. For people who live further away outside of the well, service area, well, and that's area, the trend, right? Coming it's, from elsewhere entirely. Yeah,
0: that's the trend: is for populations to keep moving out and out and out and out and out from the yeah. urban areas.
1: <laughs> they move out and out and out, and all we do is we build roads for those. We don't build right. any other sort of transportation <laughs> systems when those things move out. And that's honestly what we need to do: is we need to deprioritize the building of roads. And we need Mm -hmm. to say, if you're building a new development, you know, or whatever, you you need to account for train service to that place, something like that. I think a part of the problem, too, is just the sort of (laughs) bias against trains because they're seen as sort of old technology, right? You think of steam trains and it's like, oh, trains are a thing they had in the 1800s. And so I, I don't know. I think that when you suggest to people that like you could ride on a passenger train to get from a you know a place to place to like passenger to like politicians or planners that they don't totally understand or are, are on but i think exactly. it's just
0: unfamiliarity since we don't have it and even most people haven't used it you know yeah well you, you just know. don't think about it I, I, we <laughs> don't really want what we think we desire <laughs>
1: um so Next section here. For long-distance trips, the U.S. can expand the Essential Air Program, coupled with carbon neutrality. The Essential Air Program subsidizes flights from small rural communities to large hubs so that people in those communities have access to the outside world. The program costs $290 million per year. For reference, the U.S. government spent $450 million to upgrade 23 miles of signals in the northeast corridor between Trenton and New Brunswick. This upgrade allowed trains to travel 25 miles per hour faster between the two cities. Um, I don't know about you, but I'm not sure that expanding, uh, air service right now is a great idea. Yeah. There's a thing called climate change going <laughs> on and,
0: <laughs> I don't know uh, if you heard about it.
1: Yeah. But it's okay because he said coupled with carbon neutrality, which oh, is well, we're a to phrase. Carbon we,
0: neutrality. We, we well, all we know what he, our
1: plans. <laughs> we all know what he means by that. I don't have to explain to you what that would entail. Obviously what it would entail is, um,
0: rows and columns. Yeah, what you would do is
1: for every flight, you would plant um, several trees uh, (laughs) somewhere, um, and those would magically cancel out the carbon dioxide that you've released eventually in the future at some point.
0: So in this case, they believe in eventually in the future.
1: (laughs) Yeah, they do. Well, it's more like, I don't know, this is the throwaway solution, right? It's much easier. It's like we have this existing program. We'll just throw more money at it, the essential Mm -hmm. air program. Um, a, a, and then we'll also like th- make gestures at carbon neutrality. Like we'll donate money to the Sierra club or something IDK. <laughs> like, I don't know. This is, I have seen that this program, uh, you know, I'm not well read on it, but this, this essential air program is, is, um, you know, it's actually called the essential air service, um, It's a result of when they deregulated the airline industry in the 1970s, Um, Mm -hmm. and so suddenly the airlines could stop serving these routes that did not have enough passenger numbers. And so the government said, oh, well, we'll pay you to keep up these routes, even though they don't really have passenger numbers enough to be profitable or whatever. That's what they do with this. Um, Subsidies have increased by more than 500% since 1997 for these uh, services um it's really more of just a handout directly to the airlines because not a lot of people necessarily fly on these uh yeah that's the thing
0: i've never even heard of this
1: (laughs) yeah it also like it doesn't it doesn't really map to high-speed rail because it doesn't really overlap (laughs) with what we're getting at because like the essential air service is meant for like people going from like where some subsidized communities, people going from Prescott, Arizona, to like El Centro, California, which is not what we're talking about when we talk about high-speed rail. You
0: know? Yeah, who's who's commuting there?
1: <laughs> so that's not. When we we when we're talking about high-speed rail, we're conne- we're talking about connecting large population centers like L.A. to San Francisco right we have passenger rail it's not high speed but we have passenger rail that can be run from more distant places to sort of get you into the hub and then onto the high speed rail yeah. so it doesn't doesn't map up exactly doesn't and he track. wants to he wants to use this cost example compared to upgrading 23 miles of signals in the northeast corridor as if that's a meaningful comparison and i'm not necessarily sure that i agree um the the essential air service costs i have to i'm gonna fact check this actually i'm not gonna take his word for it 290 million dollars per year uh you supposed to...
0: so where is it
1: where are their sources on this updated december 19 2018 all right how much does this cost let's see here program costs yeah okay 290 million dollars per year Um, that's that's per per year. year. That's per year. (laughs) The upgrade to the signals, the 23 miles of signals, was a $450 $450 million one-time cost. And how long will those signals last? A long time. (laughs) They don't... (laughs) You're not paying $450 million a year. (laughs) You're paying it once. And those signals... uh, again, with rail infrastructure, stuff lasts a long time. There two are signals years, in service that are from, thing, like, the 1950s.
0: Look, two years of this service and you've already blown past it. Like
1: Exactly. <laughs> so this is I think this is a deliberately confusing comparison. We like to just give numbers, but you have right. to consider whether the numbers are, like, per year spending versus a single time expense. Those are different amounts of money over the long term. Right. So... And if we decide that we want high-speed rail in this country, we must be comfortable with rail authorities that have the power to build at their own whim. If on one end of the spectrum is the infrastructure paralysis that we are currently caught in, uh, and on the other end is a figure like Robert Moses, then we need to carve out a middle ground between these two positions. The middle ground between these two positions is one where a powerful governmental authority can control costs and move dirt without requiring several environmental studies and public comment, but also cannot steamroll minority communities and destroy the landscape in, with impunity. Cool. Cool, cool, cool i don't oh. I don't understand how you thread this needle. how you do you just make it work don't
0: you understand? Just why hasn't anybody thought of this?
1: How do you propose to not steamroll minority communities and not destroy landscapes without the mechanisms that we have developed to prevent those things from happening? That's the reason that we have environmental reviews is so that you cannot destroy landscapes. The reason that we have public comments is so that you cannot steamroll minority communities. These are the mechanisms that we developed for these problems when we realized that they were problems.
0: <clears throat> well, no, the, 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 what you do is They're you just blocks. get, you need a Robert Moses, but it needs to be a hashtag girlboss person. Yeah, of what color. you
1: need is a Robert Moses, but like a good one.
0: Yeah, you need a, yeah. you need to buy POC. Yeah. Uh, to get, uh, get in in. There. <laughs> person and then you don't have to deal with Uh, that they can just they can just absorb all of the identities and and interests liberalism Uh, (laughs) the problem with high-speed
1: rail is not high-speed rail itself with the desire to ride of 67 percent americans clearly desire a transportation alternative to our current offerings it is a legal and structural problem it is a problem that cannot be addressed by sheer will to simply lay down electrified track It is a problem that requires shifting American culture away from feckless incrementalism and distrust of our political institutions to one that values change and visionary institutions that are willing to take risks to make the country a better place to live. Until then, the billions spent on high-speed rail are for for now a pipe dream best left to our counterparts in Europe, China, and Japan. That's for now, at least. And all I had for this was- remarkable to see a neoliberal call for change away from incrementalism (laughs) except that they didn't really because that's not what this spent the
0: whole article doing the opposite of this this is absolutely amazing (laughs) come on
1: what they said is we have to move away from incrementalism (laughs) except that actually doing that would be too hard
0: i've just spent this whole article being a nebbish quibbling nerd about everything and we can't do anything and then your proposed solution is we need vision and boldness it's like
1: what no i guess we'll get it from someone other than you then
0: yeah globe man ain't helping us out here that's for sure yeah
1: i mean this is strange this is a strange place I, I feel like this is the, the sort of globe emoji affectation as you say, Oh, interesting. It seems that XYZ thing is a big problem. We should work on fixing that. And then you go, Well, how would how would you suggest that we fix that? And it's like, I don't know, but we should definitely fix it.
0: It's like it's like uh they've they've developed a spice mix that they realize like they make a bunch of crappy food, and so they gotta mm. sprinkle this spice mix, which is like it's basically uh obama energy like it's that obama charisma like oh we better sprinkle some of that on the end to like to really war up the hope change engines you know right
1: it's all hope and change without any actual hope and change
0: it's <laughs> yeah it's the same thing as like the
1: i hear you i'm listening to you i understand your concerns it's like why well, are you gonna do anything about them not at all
0: not once mentioning the fossil fuel industry in this yeah not once no, not at all <laughs> That that has nothing, obviously that has nothing to do with any of this, right? Yeah. They don't control like a huge portion of the market and have a huge amount of power in our country. Right. Yeah. (laughs) I mean, this is,
1: there are a lot of positive developments happening with, with rail. There's a lot of excitement in it more so than there has been in a long time. Things are moving. There are positive things like Caltrain electrifying its line, which is really cool and good. Um, but then there are also other things like Mark in Maryland, which has electrified lines, but is buying new diesel locomotives for them. And it's like, what are you <laughs> doing? What do you, Why? you literally don't. This, uh, here's uh, It's so frustrating because the whole benefit of electric trains, there's a lot of them, right? There's obviously that there is, there are reduced emissions. Obviously you still get emissions from whatever power plant you choose, unless it's like a hydro plant. But hopefully that plant, plant
0: isn't um, burning diesel.
1: Right. That that <laughs> Hope plant, it's a little bit more efficient. <laughs> right. That plant also can be made to be more efficient or replaced with a you know non uh, uh, or you know like a renewable source uh, right. more easily than a bunch of trains. Um, so you have electric trains. Also, electric trains don't have to carry fuel with them, which adds weight because they get their fuel from the electric lines, which are everywhere they need to go. It's kind of magical. (laughs) You don't have like, the range is limited to where your electrified line is, but you don't have to worry about running out or refueling or anything like that. Right. It's just (laughs) silly to me, because it's going to require, they already have this existing infrastructure, they're going to have to add some new infrastructure to like refill refuel their, their locomotives and things like that. So, I don't know. It's... A mixed bag right now, I would say. Um, I hope it will get better. High speed rail is not a panacea, you know? Like, and I'm right. not arguing that it's unambiguously good. Obviously, <clears throat> building it will require, uh, uh, you know, a lot of materials and a lot of usage of fuel and a lot of emissions because we don't have at the moment, you know, emission free construction equipment as much as I would like that. Although well, the more of it is emission-free than you'd think, at least with building like apartment buildings, because um, those cranes are electric and things like that. But you have to start somewhere. Unfortunately, it's it's a bit like saying, "Oh, um, what we shouldn't do is we can't build any more solar power plants because building the solar panels produces emissions, and so <laughs> we should just not bother."
0: And this it's like, is well, literally how do an argument get... that has been thrown at me a million times from like people. Yeah. By the way, the point is, it's, (laughs) it's like, yes, we have to
1: we have to we have to make an expenditure of emissions now. And I don't like it because it's not helping the problem in the immediate term. But long term, it will actually help because if we can reduce the amount of people who are driving their cars and are taking airplanes to go back and forth between populated cities and instead put them on high speed rail that Basically produces no emissions or minimal emissions per passenger on a journey. Um, That's way better, obviously.
0: And it's just better overall for your life. You know, like I commuting sucks. You can't you can't read something while you're commuting. You can't take a, a quick nap. Commuting, Why commuting sucks. Dri- driving long distances
1: sucks. People hate airports. No one likes going to the airport. Everyone yeah. hates airports. And you have to sit in them for hours because that's the way our airline system works is you have to show up two hours ahead of time. You have to get a full body search to make sure you're not carrying on four ounces of toothpaste, only three <laughs> ounces. And then you have to sit there for two hours and eat terrible food. Trains don't have that problem. You can just show up to the station fifteen minutes beforehand or whatever, no. and then you're on your way. <clears throat> and they're not as cramped than than jet planes, although, yeah. well, you know, small jet planes. The the relatively narrow body jet planes we have now. If you were in, like, a 747, those are perhaps a bit wider than than a, a rail car, but, you know, by comparison, a regional jet or something like that. You have more leg room. Um, you know, you can get up and walk around, use the restroom. There's lots of restrooms. There are at least two restrooms in each car, and there are multiple cars versus just, like, two restrooms in an airplane total. Uh, yeah, I it's mean, just... The, the, uh, to me, the benefits are tremendous, and the downsides are, are not outweighed in any, in any way by the benefits. There are downsides, you know. Again, it is hard. This observation of this piece, which is that high-speed rail is hard to do, is one that I agree with. The problem is he doesn't really propose any solutions to it. He just says, well, it's hard. <laughs> it's, it's just hard.
0: what? Yeah, I
1: mean, do you do you feel like reading that? That there was any
0: takeaway from from that? Like, Mm -hmm. what? This is what I've been trying to think about. What
1: What am I supposed to take away from this article? Here's
0: here's what here's what I think the takeaway really is. It's it it's that I don't want to be perceived as being anti climate and pro status quo, but I am.
1: Yeah. So I'm just
0: going to tear it down. Right. And that's all and that's basically at the root of the whole neoliberal project and that mindset is that, well, I I really am conservative. I really I really hmm. am anti democratic, but I understand that it's culturally um not great for me to be perceived that way. I I think so I'm gonna find a way to square it, you know?
1: Right. The argument here, which is sort of hidden, is the like, oh, we just need a bunch of technocrats, like unelected bureaucrats who just have wide levity to decide these things. But it's fine because they'll be good bureaucrats. So they'll mark out on the map where the minority communities are and we'll route the train around them. And And I
0: should be one of them. Right. Right.
1: Well, (laughs) naturally. Yeah. Um, I mean,
0: the thing is, the arguments
1: that are levied here, which is like, uh, you know, it's just too hard to do. It's too expensive. There are too many obstacles in the way. Those are the same arguments that are lobbied at basically any sort of major policy proposal in the U.S., namely like Medicare for all or doing anything about climate change. The argument is always, well, it's just too hard and we just wouldn't be able to make it work. And I don't think that that's an argument that's valid. I don't really think that you can. I mean how will we know unless we try is the thing like this is the I'm always running into this in my personal life where I always think well I should just not bother because it's too hard but like Mm -hmm. I won't ever find out unless I actually do the thing so like we gotta try something at some point we're really gonna have to get up off the couch at some point (laughs) I don't know
0: I have no idea what I'm doing was not prepared for this I'm trying and I'm learning thank you for your patience there's so many mistakes I have already made but I'm working to be better day by day and I think I'm gonna make it but for now I'll say I have no idea what I'm doing I have no idea what I'm doing